gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no roots. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Verse 18, Take care then how you hear, for to one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has, will be taken away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we want to ask that even as we talk about the word this morning, that the word will go forth. And I pray that it will bear great fruits. May the devil not take away the word. May the difficulties of life not take away the word. May the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this world not choke it out. Father, may your word go forth with great power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. We pray this confidently in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you were to survey 100 pastors and seminary professors and ask them to write down on a piece of paper who they thought were the five most influential theologians or Christian leaders from the first century to today, I would venture to say that 90 or more of them would write down the name of the Geneva reformer John Calvin. Now, why would John Calvin be included in this list? Why is it that almost 500 years later, he is still having a tremendous impact on Christianity? I think the late James Montgomery Boyce hit the nail on the head when he said, Calvin preached the Bible every day. And under the power of that preaching, the city began to be transformed. As the people of Geneva acquired knowledge of God's Word, and were changed by it, the city became, as John Knox called it later, a new Jerusalem from which the gospel spread to the rest of Europe, England, and the New World. Calvin had no weapon but the Bible. I believe James Montgomery Boyce is correct 
John Calvin has had the influence that he has for all these centuries because he was committed to preaching God's Word. Now, let me emphasize that the preaching that John Calvin was committed to was a specific kind of preaching. John Calvin was committed to expository preaching. And in case you don't know what that is, expository preaching is simply verse-by-verse exposition through books of the Bible. Because John Calvin was committed to that methodology in his lifetime, for example, he preached 89 sermons on Acts, 174 sermons on Ezekiel, 200 sermons on Deuteronomy, 353 sermons on Isaiah, 123 sermons on Genesis, and he preached through almost the entire New Testament at least once. That was John Calvin's ministry. Verse by verse, expository preaching right through books of the Bible. Now, one of the reasons why I mention that is because that is what we are committed to at this church. By and large, the preaching that comes from this pulpit is expository preaching. Week after week, we open up God's Word and we say, what does God have to say? Even if we're covering a topic like God's Word or money or the family, we're seeking to go through the text. Now, that's important, that methodology, for, for many reasons. For one... That is how God's people get the full counsel of God. Every pastor has topics that they like. And if it was up to me week after week, I would just speak on the topics that I like. But in order to keep me in check and not to bore you with my favorite topics, we open up God's Word and we see what does God have to say here. And then next week, now what does He have to say? And now what does He have to say? And if you have a healthy diet of that week after week, month after month, year after year, what you get is the full counsel of God. You look at God's Word from every passage. Here's the difficult part of that kind of preaching. You can't avoid difficult and controversial subjects. I know when I'm getting ready for a message and I come across one of those passages, I'm like, ooh, ooh this is going to be a hard one. But there's no avoiding it unless I want to say, well, let's skip over this passage. <laughs> and by the way, pastors do that. And I know they do that because I read their commentaries, which are basically their messages. And often I see they skip right over that. And I think, wow, this guy skipped right over that. I know why he did that. We try not to do that. Another reason why this kind of preaching is so important, the hard sayings can't be skipped. We have to wrestle with what God has to say. And sometimes we have to be honest and say, well, this is hard. But this is what I think he's saying. Sometimes it's hard to interpret because it's intellectually hard. Sometimes it's hard because it goes against what we think it should say. Well, difficult doctrines are not ignored. And basically, we're committed to this because God has written his word and the pastor's job is just to deliver it. I like what Vordy Botham said on one occasion. He said, I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. And I think that's a good way. God has written down His Word. He has chosen the man that He wants to communicate it. My job is to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. Together, let's try to understand what God has said, what it means for us today, and how we should respond to it. And finally, when we're committed to this, week after week, we learn how to interpret the Bible. I hope you're not only hearing God's Word every week, 
but you're also learning how to interpret it. Hope you're hearing things like, oh, context. What, what's the context? And why is this verse here? And what does that phrase mean? And hopefully you're learning how to interpret the Bible for yourself so you can do the same thing at home. And as I said earlier, John Calvin was committed to this methodology. Uh, one famous illustration shows that he was very committed to it. Uh, he was banished from his pulpit in Geneva from one occasion because there was a little hostility and he left Geneva for three years. After three years, he reluctantly came back. He walked up to the pulpit, opened up his Bible and began at the very next verse that he left off at three years ago. That was Calvin's commitment. He was committed to that because he reasoned God begets and multiplies his church only by means of his word. And Calvin believed that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And when the Bible speaks, God works in his congregation. That's why he was committed to expository preaching. Now, at this point, I'd like to turn to our text. And if I can adjust Calvin's last statement just a little bit, I want to say that God or Jesus Christ plants and grows His kingdom only through the Word. That's the message of Luke 8. Jesus Christ plants and grows His kingdom only through His Word. Now, I'd like us to consider four points. The first three will be brief and the fourth one will be a little longer. Number one, and this brings us to the context Jesus is continuing to preach about the kingdom. Jesus is continuing to preach about the kingdom. I want to make sure that we have the big topic in mind. Look at verse 8. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages. I'll just stop there for a moment. He's going through cities and villages. And as he's going through all these cities and all these villages, what is he doing? What is his objective? We're told, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is an itinerant preacher. He's going through cities and villages, and he is preaching the message of the kingdom of God. Now, in Luke, we're given the interpretation of this parable. In verse 11, we read, Now the parable is this, the seed is the Word of God. But if you turn to Matthew, and from time to time I'm going to make reference to Matthew and Mark, because this parable is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. In other words, it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they shed light on what we read here. But if you turn to Matthew 13:17, you don't have to do that, but Jesus says that it's the Word of the Kingdom. So this parable is the word of the kingdom. And in Luke 8.10, when Jesus is talking to His disciples, He says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is continuing to preach about the kingdom of God. This brings us to our second point, which is an elaboration of the first point. Jesus is not only preaching about the kingdom, 
But his preaching is part and parcel of building the kingdom, or better, planting and growing the kingdom. Jesus is planting and growing the kingdom through his preaching. Turn back to Mark 4, if you will. And at this point, I'd like you to follow on. Mark 4. Now, this comes right after the parable about the sower, or the parable about the soils, if you prefer. And then in 26, Mark 4, 26, this is what we read. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Sounds just like the parable of the soils, doesn't it? (laughs) Okay, that's the kingdom of God. As if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So very briefly, talking about the kingdom, and it's like someone sowing seed, sowing the seed of the Word of God, and it grows. Verse 30, And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed. So once again, he's using seed to describe the kingdom. It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when grown in the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Okay, now, some quick observations. The kingdom of God is planted. The kingdom of God grows When the Word goes forth. That's so important. And here's something else we have to understand. It grows slowly. Talked about this before. Some say the kingdom is just going to come all of a sudden. No, that's not what he says. The kingdom of God is like seed and it's planted. And then what what does he say? The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then full grown ear. The kingdom grows slowly. In the next parable, he describes it as a great tree, like a great oak tree. That takes time. The kingdom grows slowly. But it does grow. And I want to say that it will be a great kingdom someday. Now, this parable that Jesus uses about the tree, it does have historical precedence. There was a great kingdom in the Old Testament that was described by a tree. Does anybody know what kingdom that was? Or who the king was? Nebuchadnezzar. Very good, Demos. Wow, some kind of prize. Very good. Daniel 4, 11 and 12. And in the context, this is Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel 4, 11 and 12. You can just listen along if you like. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. 
Its leaves were beautiful and its fruits abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So Jesus is telling this parable. And the Jews who understand the Old Testament like Deb Moser, they would have said, wow, that sounds like Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom that was the greatest kingdom on earth at that time and it was described as a tree. And that's what the kingdom's going to be like. It's going to take time, but it's going to grow and it's going to become this great tree. It's going to become a great kingdom in time as the Word goes forth and bears fruit. We need to be patient though. Theologians often talk about the kingdom by using the phrase the already and the not yet. Already the kingdom is here. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom with His first coming. But not yet do we see the fullness of that kingdom. Not yet do we see the culmination of that kingdom. It's a process. So already it's here, but not yet do we see the fullness of the kingdom. Third point. Jesus is showing His disciples how to build or grow the kingdom. And namely, by indiscriminately spreading the seed. Spreading the Word of God. Now, if you were a farmer, Norbert, you might think that this is wasteful sowing. Look at this farm. Now, here's the picture. Maybe you've seen pictures of this. There's a farmer and he's got a sack around his waist with seed and he's just walking and he's just tossing the seed everywhere. And we read the parable and we see that much of it's wasted. It's thrown on a path and it's just trodden underfoot and it bears no fruit. In our day, we might say, well, he walks down the highway just spreading his seed. That's, that's a waste. And, and then he spreads it among the rocks. We might say a gravel pit. Well, there's, there's not enough dirt there. It's not going to bear fruit. That's foolish. Or he spreads the seed among the thorn bushes. We say, well, that's, that's a waste. What's Jesus saying here? I think He's saying you're to be indiscriminate in spreading the seed. Just spread it everywhere. Don't you worry about the outcome. Your job is to just get the Word out. Everybody, anybody. Bring everybody in. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent, tall, short. I'll stop there. <laughs> Everybody's invited. Just get the Word out. That's your job. And then when you sleep, you'll be surprised at what will happen. It's not wasteful. The kingdom grows. The kingdom expands. The church is built up. Christians are built up as the Word goes forth. That's what we've been seeing in the book of Acts. Let me remind you of some of the passages that we've looked at in the book of Acts. Acts 6-7 So the Word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. That's great. The Word is growing. Disciples are increasing because, because of the Word going forth. Acts 12, 24. But the Word of God continued to increase and spread. Acts 13, 49. The Word of God spread through the whole region. Acts 19, 20. In this way, the Word of the Lord spread widely and grew in great power. So we've mentioned before that the book of Acts is the disciples going forth from Jerusalem Jerusalem, Judea, then to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They are going forth and they're just spreading the seed. They're proclaiming the Word of God to anybody and everybody who will listen. And God is blessing it. And people are coming to Christ and the kingdom is growing. That's what the book of Acts is all about. 
God's Word bearing fruits. And in a sense, you could say that God's whole redemptive plan for the nations, God's whole redemptive plan for the nations rises and falls on the success of His Word. Because that's how He's established it. That's God's redemptive plan. How are people going to come to Christ? The Word's going to go forth. And when the Word goes forth, it's amazing what happens. Martin Luther was asked on one occasion what he had done to cause all that trouble in Germany. We refer to all that trouble as the Reformation. And you've heard this before. This is one of my great, one of my favorite quotes. Martin Luther said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Ansdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. And I love that quote because I do not think it's an exaggeration. Martin Luther meant that. And it really was the case. The church was going through a terrible dark period. The church was corrupt. You think our church is corrupt in America? The church in Martin Luther's day was tremendously corrupt. The church, the, the priests were selling indulgences for salvation. Imagine going to church and, and the priest saying, well, if you give a little more money, your father can be saved and we can get him out of purgatory and he, and he can go to heaven eventually. Tremendously corrupt. But God blessed His Word. Of course, Martin Luther wasn't the first to do this, but he was, as I like to call, the instigator of the Reformation. But he got the Word out and it bared tremendous fruits. And then John Calvin, that we mentioned a while ago, was known by Luther as the theologian. Some call him the architect of the Reformation. He got the Word out. Others followed him. And the Word just spread across nations, across continents. The Word, that was it. And then the pastors got together, had a beer, went to bed, and while they slept, the Word bore fruit. It really did. Just like in the parable. Luther was thinking of the parable. While he slept, it bore fruit and the kingdom grew. And Jesus showing His disciples, this is what you do. You get the Word out. The fourth point Jesus tells His disciples about the different responses they can expect and why. Tells His disciples about the different responses they can expect and why. And this comes in the interpretation. Verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The birds that he talked about earlier represents the devil. Birds are terrible if you've done any planting. Uh, last summer, we uh, planted some grass seed in our backyard and spread dirt and then spread seed and put straw over it. And I'd wake up in the morning and I'd ask Michelle, I'd say, what, what are all those birds doing out there? <laughs> Eating our grass seed! <laughs> It's terrible. I wanted to get a shotgun out. You know, <laughs> uh, they were just eating up the seed. They were taking it away. They were destroying my crop. 
That's the devil in Jesus' parable. And this is what I think that we should understand. At the heart of the spiritual battle is Satan taking away the Word. There, there is so much ridiculous teaching about spiritual warfare these days. But let me just get to the heart of it. It is a battle over the Word of God. What is Satan about? One thing we know about because of this passage, he is about taking away the Word of God. He will do anything so that people will not go to church on a Sunday morning and hear the preaching of God's Word. He will do anything so that people will not open up their Bibles during the week and read the Word of God. That's where the battle is, friends. The battle is over the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God that strengthens us. It's the Word of God that sanctifies us. It's the Word of God that builds us up. It's the Word of God that gives a light unto our path. Without the Word of God, we're weak. We're sinful. We're in the dark. And Satan's won the victory. The battle, friends, is over this book right here. The battle is over this book. Why do you think the Reformers and others, when they they would translate the Word of God, why do you think many of them were stoned or burned at the stake? That was the battle because they would dare to put God's Word into the language of the people so that it could get out. Satan was stifling the Word of God. That's where the battle is. That's what bears fruit. We are born again, not through perishable seed, but through the imperishable seed of God's Word. Now, that's one response. What's another response? Verse 13, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the Word, receive it with joy. That sounds positive. But, These have no roots. They believe for a while and in time of testing, fall away. The shallow people, they hear the word, they're all excited. I see people like this. You probably have too. This is great. Love being in this church. Love singing the hymns. Love listening to God's word. This is great. Can't wait to see you next week. Say to Michelle, where was that couple we saw a couple of weeks ago? What happened? What happened? see this all the time. You would think that joy over God's Word would be a positive response. It might be, it might not be. Which is Jesus telling His disciples, be careful. Because you're going to think people are so excited with the Word, but maybe they're not. Even Herod, we're told, used to enjoy listening to John the Baptist before he had his head cut off. He enjoyed it. He found something interesting about it. Be careful. They believe for a while. Believing in the Bible is not always saving belief. We saw this many times in the Gospel of John. Believing in the Bible is not always a saving belief. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. This means they really didn't believe with saving faith. They had a pseudo-belief. But it wasn't a saving faith. You say, well, how do we know that? Because they didn't persevere. True faith perseveres. In 1 John 2.19, we read, 
they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. If they had remained with us, they would have belonged to us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. John is saying because they didn't persevere, it shows that they were never really among us to begin with. It looked like it, but they weren't really among us. And some of you have had an experience of someone that you thought was a Christian. They were genuinely converted, but they fell away. I can remember when I was a new Christian, there was a guy that I worked with and I invited him out to church and he loved it. He came to church. We were in a small group together. We were baptized on the same day. We would meet together and pray together at work. But then over time, he stopped coming to church with me. Stopped coming to the Bible study that we were a part of. And actually, he started participating in activities that he didn't do before he was coming to church. And I was just devastated. What, what happened? He was so excited. You know why I think he was excited? I think he was excited because he thought God was going to put his marriage back together. God didn't put his marriage back together. And when God didn't put his marriage back together, he became disillusioned. He was using God to put his marriage back together. And when God didn't give him what he wanted, he said, I'm out of here. Which demonstrated over a period of time that he really didn't have saving faith in Christ. And it's a devastating thing to see. Especially when it's a friend of yours, somebody that you know. To watch somebody turn away. And, and sometimes we don't have the categories. I remember when I first heard that, I, I didn't understand. How could anybody do that? I don't, I don't understand. Now I understand. They don't really believe, so they don't persevere. And this is why perseverance of the saints is so important. True believers persevere. There's many passages that talk about if you continue in the faith, firm and steadfast, not moved from the hope of the gospel. A true believer perseveres over time. These people don't persevere because of a testing. The other verses tell us because of a trial, because of persecution that comes. They say it's not worth it. And they turn away. There's a third response. Verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. Mark 4.19 says that they are unfruitful. Why are they unfruitful? Because of the cares of the world. Because of the deceitfulness of riches. Because they're given to pleasures. So these people hear the Word of God. Maybe they say it's wonderful. They go throughout their day and they say, ah, I think I'd rather have what this world has to offer. And the Word of God is choked. Kind of a graphic illustration. The Word of God is choked. Snuffed out. Doesn't bear fruit. They're unfruitful. And I think this is a reminder even for Christians, let's be careful. Let's be careful. Maybe you're not hearing a message because you're just so bound up with the things of this world. The deceitfulness of riches. That can really take care of me. 
That can pay the bills. That can provide for me. And God says, I'll take care of you. Be careful. And then there is a good response. Finally, Jesus gets to the good response. Verse 15, As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the Word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. These people have a good heart. They bear fruit. Why do they bear fruit? Is Jesus saying, you just sow the seed and you got to know that there's wicked people out there and there's good people out there? That's not what He's saying. You know what? None of us has a good heart. Okay? There's no one who seeks God. No, not once. There's no one who does good. No, not once. Nobody has a good heart. Why do these people have a good heart? Because God did a supernatural work in their lives. God took away their heart of stone and gave them a heart of flesh, a good and honest heart. This is a work of God. And because of the work of God in their lives, they bear fruits. And this is the only legitimate response to God's Word. The other passages tell us that some bear 30-fold, some bear 60-fold, some bear 100-fold, which is a tremendous yield. In Genesis 26.12, we read, Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped 100-fold because the Lord blessed him. So the sign of this tremendous yield, which any farmer would love 100-fold, is because of the Lord's blessing. The other soils do not bear fruits. They're not saved. To put it bluntly, they are not Christians. I do not believe that there's such a thing as a carnal, unfruitful Christian. I know some teach that, that you can be a Christian on the inside and not have any external change on the outside and not bear any fruit. I do not believe that for a moment. When God changes you on the inside, that is going to work itself out. Everything in your life flows from the heart, does it not? And if you have a good heart, Jesus says you will bear fruit. And that's why Jesus can also say, by your fruit, by their fruit, you will know them. You can know them by their fruit. Now, you have to be careful how you evaluate people. Let's, let's be charitable here. Let's not go around and well, I don't see much fruit in his life. I don't see much fruit in her life. Let's be very careful about how we evaluate this. But I guarantee you will bear fruit. Why, why do you think you were converted in the first place? So that you could just be the same old, ornery, miserable person you were beforehand? God converts us so that our lives can be changed so that we can bear fruits. And there's many passages that talk about this, but let me just give you one. John 15, verse 18. This is where Jesus talks about Him being the vine and His Father the vine dresser and we are the branches. And He says, By this My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. Bearing fruit is important because it brings glory to God and it proves that we're disciples. That's what demonstrates that we're disciples. We actually 
bear fruit. Sorry, I gave you the wrong verse. It's not 18. It's verse 8, in case you're looking, saying, where is he? (laughs) Okay, now, back to Luke. Verse 18 says, and I think this is still talking about, it's in the context of the the parable. I'm not going to talk about what comes before it. We're running out of time. Verse 18 Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Notice this is saying, take care how you hear, how you listen. For example, how you listen to a message, because if you listen carefully, you can be given more. If you don't listen carefully, even what you have can be taken away. Judgment can be happening even when God's Word going forth. It can be a blessing. It can be a curse. Look at Luke 8.10. Remember what Jesus said? To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. To you, it has been given. Given by whom? Given by God. To you, it's been given by God. It is a gift that's been given to you. But for others, they are said in parables so that... And this is a quote from Isaiah 6. Seeing, they may not see. And hearing, they may not understand. The context of Isaiah 6 that this is taken from is Isaiah, he sees the king high and lifted up, you know, sees his glory. And then God says, now I want you to go. And he says, by the way, as you proclaim the word, they're not going to see. They're not going to hear. They're not going to understand and they're not going to be saved. In other words, they're going to be judged. Terrible ministry. Isaiah, your ministry is not going to bring, not going to be one that brings about salvation. Yours is going to be one that brings about judgment. Maybe you've heard this illustration. The same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. That's what God's Word does. For some people, it makes them soft and their hearts tender towards the things of God. Towards others, it makes them hard. I just heard last week someone responded to my message with anger. They said they were mad. That happens. This is wonderful. What a great message. Ticked me off. I can't believe the pastor said that. How dare he call me lazy. That's what the Word of God does. It It divides. How do we respond? Absolutely crucial that we respond appropriately. Proverbs 1. Turn there if you have your Bibles. In Proverbs 1, wisdom is personified as a woman crying out in the streets, raising her voices so that everybody can hear what she has to say. Proverbs 1.20 Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you and make my words known to you. Do you know what that is, friends? In one word, that is revival. That's revival. 
God's word's going forth, and He says, if you turn at my reproof, if you listen, if you respond in obedience, if you repent, if you change your way, this is what I'll do. I will pour out my Spirit to you. Can you think of any occasion when God poured out His Spirit? Pentecost. God poured out His Spirit. God is saying, I'll give you a Pentecost, a personal Pentecost. If you listen, if you respond, if you change your ways, I will pour out My Spirit to you. Not just trickle it out. Not just dribble it out. I will pour out My Spirit and make My words known to you. I'll give you understanding of My words. I will give you ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand so that your life will change. And again, that's a gift from God. Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Not everybody has ears. Not spiritual ears. Not everybody has ears. God gives us physical ears. God gives us spiritual ears. And He says, when you respond appropriately to My Word, I will bless you. Do you want to be blessed? It comes through the Word. It comes through the Word. That's what God uses. And conversely, when God wants to judge a people, what does He do in relationship to the Word? He takes it away. He takes it away. So that people wander from sea to sea so that people wander through the wilderness looking for the Word. And as Amos 8.10 says, they don't find it because there's a famine in the land and they starve spiritually. God blesses us through His Word. He disciplines us through His Word. Proverbs goes on to say, because I have called to you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. It's too late because they hated my knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despise all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have the fill of their own devices. This makes me tremble. God, God's not playing games. When His Word goes forth, He is saying, listen carefully. Respond appropriately. And if you do, I'll bless you in amazing ways. If you don't, I will judge you in frightening ways. Many people say, well, as a pastor, you have a high calling. And you know what? I do. This is a high calling. But I want you to know that you likewise have a high calling. Preaching is a high calling, but so is listening a high calling. I am to be a steward of God's Word. Proclaim it accurately. You also are to be stewards of God's Word and respond appropriately. We all have a high calling whether it's proclaiming or listening to God's Word. Much is at stake. May God give us ears to hear.
Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is a blessing. But as with all Your blessings, it also contains great responsibility. Father, I pray that You will help us respond appropriately to Your Word. Father, give us understanding. Father, help us to walk in obedience to Your words. Father, I pray that You will revive us individually. I pray that You will revive us as a church because we respond at Your reproof. Father, when we're convicted, may we not get mad. May we get repentant. May we change our ways. Father, thank You for Your Word. Help us to see the sacred trust that we have in responding to it. Amen.